what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. Even though I got a taste of the, you know, the affluence and the thing from my father's life, I saw these women that made a mark in the world, and that sort of molded me. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, a show that dives into the often untold teenage and young adult experiences of successful women from all types of backgrounds and in all sorts of careers. This show is an extension of Bridget, a confidence coaching service for young women. I am Asha Gabriel, and I co-host this show alongside my best friend, Kashia Rosenberg. Today, I am honored to welcome the queen of Beverly Hills real estate herself, Rainey Ramito Williams. Rainey has specialized in high-end real estate, and she's established a remarkable real estate track record with more than $12.5 billion in total career sales alongside her partner and husband, Brandon Williams. Yes, I said billion. Her clients include Jennifer Lopez, Angelina Jolie, and Dr. Dre, just to name a few. Rainey has been nationally and locally recognized for her impressive work and has earned notable accolades, including the Wall Street Journal's Top Producing Agents, Variety's Real Estate Elite, the Hollywood Reporter's Top Real Estate Agents, and the Los Angeles Business Journal's 500 Influential People in Los Angeles. Additionally, she has provided real estate expert commentary for various top-tier national news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, LA Times, Forbes, CNN, Business Insider, Bloomberg TV, Fox Business, The Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and more. Previously holding careers in journalism and the lending business, Rainey's in-depth knowledge of market trends and luxury inventory paired with her energetic and confident disposition has made her one of the nation's top producing female agents. A philanthropist, ambassador, and mother, Rainey is recognized and vastly respected amongst both her clients and peers. She's viewed as an honest professional that gives her full devotion and loyalty into everything she pursues. Rainey and I met in a real estate context. We were working together on a different program that I'm hosting, and I immediately took to Rainey's just warm energy, her confidence, but also her smarts. She is as sharp as a tack and also so willing to share her knowledge, her expertise. She's just one of those people that you want to talk to. So Rainey, welcome to Meet Bridget. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you, Asha. Thanks for having me. So we love to, right off the bat, get into your early days, your childhood, where you grew up, what you were like as, a, like as early as you can remember, different personality traits, things that kind of set you apart. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah, I love that you ask that because I feel like there's, you know, so much talk and openness and forums, but nobody really delves into that. So that's awesome. So I will start by telling you in my early years what it was like. I grew up in a really big Italian family. Both of my parents are Italian, so I'm full-blooded Italian. My grandparents were immigrants and my mother was one of eight children. And so her family was really big and fun. And all of my aunts and uncles were kind of like extended parents. And I had, you know, over 30 cousins and just a lot of love and a lot of fun. My father's side was a bit smaller and he was just one of three and they were all boys. And his family was also, you know, being from Italy, but 
they were very proper and formal and very highly educated. And not that, you know, my mother's wasn't, but my mother's was not formal. It was a lot of fun and love and baseball games in the yard and Sunday dinners that lasted the entire day. And just a part of me that my mother's side that um, I could never say was not really truly who made me who I am. Mm -hmm. My father's side, um, and I differentiate the two because when I was three years old, my parents divorced. And uh, my mother's family was all from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that's really where I spent the majority of my time. Although there was some traveling involved and things like that that we'll get to. But I really grew up there and it was very um, sort of blue collar, very hardworking and amazing people from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Some of the best people I've ever met. And even still, when I meet people that say they're from Pittsburgh, you just kind of know. You're yeah. just like, yeah, those are good people. I learned early on just sort of this dual personality that started establishing my my personality because, you know, sometimes I would be with my father and that family, you know, again was, you know, we we had to get dressed up to come down to dinner. Or we had to eat a certain way. We had our, you know, linen napkins. And that was sort of a part-time living. And I noticed early on the difference in, I would say, you know, social and economic vastness mm -hmm. and the respect that sort of, you know, my my paternal side had and and different things that I I realized that affluence could afford you. Mm -hmm. And with my maternal side, what was super cool was that my grandfather was uneducated, maybe a middle school education from his Italian village or wherever in Parma, Italy. He learned to become a bricklayer. And when they came to America, that was his only trade and baseball. He played baseball, but never, you know, professionally or anything. So he became a developer from his like simple trade because what ended up happening is they had so many children. He built this massive home for the eight children to live in. And he was able to do that cost effectively because that's what he did. And then some of my uncles became, you know, worked for the company, worked for the family business. When all of those eight children moved out, my grandmother, who I'll go segue into because this is my maternal grandmother, really made her mark on me, took this large home. And she became the entrepreneur. She became the owner of a convalescence home, but not just any convalescence home. She took all of these rooms and she rented them out to only women starting out, just to women. And so the word around town was that this Italian woman who cooks homemade meals and does everything takes care of women that would, are going into you know, old, old folks' homes. So that's what she did. And she was renting out all these eight plus rooms, even more, took the basement of the, 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 the large home and built an apartment. And she and my grandfather lived under there. And then that way she didn't have to have nurses and staff on for the night shift because she had sort of like, you know, what we would think of as baby monitors because she was there, you know, she was under, under in her apartment and she would have, there was a staircase up. And then there was the main level with the kitchen. There were several bedrooms on the main level. And then she had a staircase that went up that put a chair glide on. And there were multiple bedrooms up there. And she started killing it. And she later in life, she, you know, she died a multimillionaire. It was truly the American dream. And when she took over and I saw that shift in power 
from a housewife with eight children who was probably at many times in her life losing her mind to that and, and seeing how resilient she was between her and my mother, who was essentially a single mom for many, many years, you know, after she and my father split when I was three, even though I got a taste of the, you know, the affluence and the thing from my father's life, I saw these women that made a mark in the world. And that sort of molded me. I love that story. I mean, you painted it in such a beautiful picture. I can just imagine your grandmother's resourcefulness. And, you know, we've talked before and immediately one of the words that came to mind hearing your story was that you and your husband, you, you are both so resourceful. Any situation, you're able to turn around and turn into something. So what a great just impact on your younger years. Did you have siblings growing up? Yeah. So I have a brother and he's three years older than me. His name is Rad and my name is Rainy, obviously. And people are like, you know, as Italians, you know, we all have similar names like, you know, Maria and Anthony and Mario. And, you know, I have all my family names and my mom veered away from that. In fact, my mom was quite ahead of her time. She was a yogi and a meditator. She learned to meditate with the Maharishi she studied. And she pulled away from the Catholic Church and she pulled away a bit from the Italian culture and she became a vegan and first a vegetarian for like 25 years. And then when she finally made her way to California to be with me, which we'll get to, she became a vegan. So, you know, through that period, my brother and I were very close and we always dabbled back and forth with the families. And I think some other things that rang true for me was, you know, my father's side, they were all addicts. They were all alcoholics. Okay. We talk openly about this now in this mm -hmm. day and age of health and wellness and so forth, but they were very elegant because they were Italian. So they had the decanter and they yeah. drank, you know, their wine that they paired with the meal. And then they had the aperitivo and then they had, you know, then they would move on to whatever, if it were martinis or whatever the case may be, but it always looked very good. Mm -hmm. And it always, to me as a small child and my, my, my grandmother smoked long cigarettes and she was very glamorous and she was very into fashion. And I wanted that. I was like, I kind of want like a little bit of that. But then I would go to my other Nona's and she was just fierce and, you know, amazing. But she was very down to earth, very real. And she didn't drink. And none of my maternal side drank or had addiction problems. So as my life progressed, uh, my father did have the addiction gene. And then my teenage years started coming. My mother would openly talk to me that, you know, you must be careful because there's a chance that you could be an addict and stuff like that. And so it was always in the back of my mind and my brother's mind. And I really stayed away from, you know, drugs, you know, until I didn't. But that's a part of my story. So what happened was, you know, around 14 or 15, the first time I tried alcohol, I noticed immediately that I had a problem. But I didn't, I was so young, I was a kid, I didn't really know. But I noticed that my friends would have a drink or two of like Zima or something, you know, when you're yeah. a kid drinking. And I would kind of like want to keep drinking till I would black out. So I steered clear because I was a very good girl. I was a cheerleader. I was, a, you know, student council. I, I was nominated for everything because I was nice to everybody and I was popular. I had the football boyfriend and I was a good girl. That's what I was like. I want to be a good girl and do the right thing. That's the way I was raised, you know. And um, then when I went away to college, unfortunately, around the age of like 19, I tried cocaine for the first time. 
and I developed a very bad addiction to drugs and alcohol. And I used drugs and alcohol until I was about 25. But I didn't just use them. I used them and abused them. And it was, um, listen, it's a very big part of my story because without it, I wouldn't be sober. And I'm now sober. I'll be 17 years sober on October 1st. I got sober when I was 25 years old. And, and that link, that missing part that, we'll, that you know, we can talk about more if you want, but sort of what happened was the drinking and the using just started out like anybody who maybe experiments in college or whatever. But I had that genetic aspect of it, which I do think is a part of it, coupled with, you know, this personality that I have. I've taken that and made it my success story. So I turned off the drugs and alcohol and turned it into perseverance and relentlessness and a desire for wellness and goodness and giving back. And I did go to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in it and it changed my life. It is a 12-step program and I'm not promoting it at all. But if, you know, if if there's anybody listening that that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, it is an amazing free program that you know, you can pretty much look up and find a meeting anywhere and you can go and hear these stories. And if you hear similarities, you know, it can really help you to put your life into perspective. I didn't find it until 2006. Mm-hmm. Was it 2006 when I had already segued into real estate from a few other things out of college? Um, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had read that about you and Brandon in an in interview. And I think that it's so refreshing because coming into the real estate industry, there is definitely this stigma of like, part of it is, you know, these real estate agents and they work in this flexible schedule and, you know, you need to be out socializing with your clients and partying with them. Mm. And that's part of this like luxe, like the, the more luxurious the real estate, it's almost like the harder people seem to be partying. And yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate to you in that, like growing up, you know, I was like very much aligned with that, like good girl mentality. I'm like, I just don't want to be aligned with anything that throws me off my game or makes me feel like I'm out of control. Like I'm hands down, definitely a control freak, you know, like, and you can find ways to like angle that into, you know, things that, that serve you or, you know, there are things that don't serve you and that can, you know, have a, a different path. So I think it's so refreshing to share that, that especially at your level of incredible success, you know, this this becoming sober and embracing, you know, your journey and your path, you know, through addiction as part of your story. I think it's important for even our really young audience to hear because many of the young women that we reach, you know, are at those critical stages where it's like, okay, you're going to probably at some point, you know, <laughs> depending on where be you live, you're exposed to this, right? Be exposed exactly. to it. And especially, I think, as women in any kind of, there's still that stigma of, financial or asset-based careers. There's, in the movies, it's all drinking and partying and that kind of... Um, right. There is an allure to it. Like you were describing, you know, your your paternal grandmother with her long cigarette and everything and, you know, marketing to us, even as since the time we were young, has aligned some of those brands of alcohol and tobacco and all these things with this sure. like, glamorous lifestyle, which really those things aren't necessarily connected. Right. But I, I do know, um, from what I know about you and Brandon, is that fashion is something that you connected over. It was one of the first things you realized, like, oh, we like a lot of the same things. 
Um, yes. So it does seem like you did take some of that glamour and your interest in it, but applied it to yeah. your life in different ways. Can you tell me a little bit about going back to when you were really young? When did you first get interested in kind of fashion and and that side of your life? I think I came out of the womb from up, my mother tells me wanting and and desiring fashion and my mother, you know, I described her pretty well, like as a yogi and she's very educated. She has a uh, master's and she was a speech therapist for 30 years in a hospital. She worked with autistic children and people that lost their speech and tracheotomies and so forth. But aside from that, she was pretty earthy and yet she always cared very much about her appearance and dressed really well. But she says for me, like sometimes she would just look at me and be like, I don't know where this kid came from because I remember in this, I must have been 12. I was in going into sixth grade and I wanted a Fendi bag. I actually still have it. It was my first Fendi bag. And I remember, you know, I, the way I was raised was with a lot of reinforcement, positive reinforcement and a lot of yeses. You know, my mother cultivated this attitude of like, you know, my job is to take care of you, give you the best education, the best food and um, expose you to the best things. And if you want extras, I'm going to help you try to find your way to get that. And I've always worked. So I started working at a very young age. Actually, in the convalescence home, in my grandmother's home, I became the activities director. So what, I, what that means is I would go in and entertain a lot of these women that would have dementia or not even dementia, but just no visitors. They're, you'd be surprised. It's so sad. I mean, so many people do not go to visit their family or they can't because perhaps they have to send them out of state or whatever the case may be, but there were no visitors. Yeah. So if they were Jewish, sometimes I would dress up like a boy and I would be the rabbi and I would tell them that I was coming to sit with them. I would also get the backstory on them and I would sing them some of their favorite songs. And if they did have dementia, hold their hand and tell them, I would just lie and say, oh, I'm your cousin, I'm your niece or I'm your granddaughter, Alyssa, and I'm here. And I would hold them. And I then, as I think around 14, I started perming their hair. I would do beauty day. I would do their nails. I would do their feet. I would do pedicures. I loved perming their hair because it like, I would do the rollers and I would do the solution. And I, I would take the two little, like, it look, it feel, it looks like a, um, you know, like when you wrap tissue paper yeah. and, and I would roll them back and then I would put the, that was my favorite. I didn't love the pedicure so much because, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's rough when you get older, those feet. Yeah. But anyway, but that kind of was my first job. And that, I did that all the way until I went to college. I would interview them. I would tape record them. This is before iPhone. So I, you know, I would just have like a little uh, tape recorder because I wanted to be a journalist. That's what I went to school for. So I would interview them and do put these little things together and ask, ask them about the wars that they lived through in different parts of history. And that was my first job. So if I worked, basically I could have anything I wanted because my family was very upper middle class, but I definitely had that blue collar, hardworking mentality. But I, like I said, I got green lights all the time because my mom believed in raising children where if you give them endless yeses, and I'm not saying this is right and not necessarily how I'm raising my kids, but this is what her philosophy was. Endless yeses, yeses all day long. You want that candy? Sure, have that candy. Listen to your body. Stop eating the candy when your body doesn't feel like it's, you know, responding well to it. You could get sick from it, but go for it. Have at it. And that was kind of how she was. So, you know, I fashioned the taking it back to the question of, you know, when did fashion fashion for me was always a thing. 
I never remember a time when from like, I remember being four and five years old and I had a look. I wanted a jean skirt with a black top and black, you know, sandals. They were the jelly sandals that I yes. remember them. But like I had to have, I really was a fan of black and I still am. As in, and then, you know, and then as it progressed, I remember getting an award for the best dressed in my high school. And I worked in, then I worked in the clothing store and fashion for me was an expression of myself. And then when I got into real estate, because I was so young when I got into real estate, I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to do the high end. And my clients I knew were going to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I was in my 20s. So I would wear any hand-me-downs I had from my fancy grandma, like Chanel, and my first Kelly bag was from my grandmother. So I had these like thick pieces that I couldn't afford. They weren't sustainable for me, but I would pair them with things I would get at the thrift store. So the day that I met Brandon, I had been at my firm for maybe three, Brandon's my husband, three or six months, and I was in my cubicle. And that particular day, and he tells this story, that's why I reference it, is that I was wearing a vintage Valentino dress that I found at this thrift store in Los Angeles. And I loved to go thrifting and it was brocade and beautiful. And it was an umpire waist and it was um, sort of like peplumed out. And I remember it as clear as day. It had a lot of greens and flexes of gold and like sort of earth tony greens and uh, topes. And it was very, it was very special. And I, and I think for a 24 or five-year-old LA girl, that's not what LA girls were wearing in yeah. 2004. You know what I mean? That's when like Britney Spears and like the wife beater look yes, with the low super jeans. Low jeans. Like, exactly. So, I mean, I definitely was like pushing 50 in my style, but I always was like that, you know, as a small, and, and I remember I had um, a mentor actually from, from Alcoholics Anonymous. Her name was Alona. She was a fit model for Helmet Lang and all, not Helmet Lang, Helmet Newton and all these like 50s designers, Oleg Cassini. Oleg Cassini used to make all the fashion for Jackie Kennedy. And she was a sober woman who grew up in Venice, California, sort of like a latchkey kid. She was like a street kid, but she was beautiful. She was half Japanese, half something else. She was really tall. She had kind of like your look with light eyes. I mean, she was absolutely breathtaking. When I became friends with her, she was in her 60s. So she would tell me all these fabulous stories. And she would come over and work my closet with me and put outfits together. And um, I had I had a couple Chanel jackets that were my grandmother's and they were, you know, they're heavy, like they're Chanel. They're like tweed, you know, and but now they're so chic, I think, with like a T-shirt and jeans. But I was just like rocking them in my 20s. And uh, Alona said, "Um, you have to stop with the Chanel jackets. Like you you have your whole life to wear Chanel and it is not now. Love it. And I would wear really, and I'm, you know, and I'm only five foot three, so I'm short. So I would, and I would wear long skirts. And she was like, and these long skirts, you're too short for them. Back then, really like the the platform and thing like that, things like that weren't as in fashion. So it wasn't that moment, but I would wear these long dresses anyway. And she was like, no. And so I put all of that on the back burner. I never got rid of them. They're still in my closet. It was moments like that and women like that, that helped me to kind of um, delve deeper into my love of fashion and, and, you know, and, and learning more about it and like studying the genres. Yeah. I love that explanation. Firstly, because, you know, I like hearing stories of women just being real with one another, you know, like that she's definitely, you could tell you had that level of trust with her, but she's telling it to you straight in a way that she really believed would benefit you. 
And I love hearing I remember it hurt my feeling at yeah. first when, because the funny thing is, I don't think I really knew I was short yeah. until, I swear this might go to my mom's like positive reinforcement philosophy yeah. of green lights all day. But like, I think I thought that I was like 5'10". I never knew I was short. <laughs> and so maybe Alona told me you're too short for these long skirts. I'm like, what? I'm short? I love you know? that. And it's such um to our our company phrases a state of mind, mm-hmm. and it, we did the play on words of a state, but it's all your state of mind. You know, yeah. if you believe, then you are. I love it, and that like everything is kind of relative. You know, I, yeah. I, I I love the fact that you didn't know you were you know shorter until much later because it is it's all by a comparison. You know, and I maybe when I moved to LA and there were like yeah. all these models around, and I was like, oh. But but I was like, okay, my heels just got higher. I'm yeah, like, yeah. I still am going to stand tall. Like, I didn't feel that I wasn't worthy because of that. And yeah, that's so funny. I almost had like an opposite experience growing up where it was like, oh, I am taller than every man in my small town. I'm like, I am way taller than all the girls. And then I came to LA to go to college and was like, I can be normal. There are groups of people in this city where I am totally normal. And there are men that tower over me. And I just, it was like this, um, you know, my posture, everything was just, it just Mm -hmm. kind of improved because it was just like, wow, no. Like, I'm home. (laughs) Here here I am. This was the right right. move to get out of a small town. But yeah, I, I love, I love your stories about fashion because it is really, I think there is a lot of crossover between, you know, what you did you you've worked as you know we'll get into journalism and everything you've always had this passion for fashion but all of these interests and passions really do translate into real estate that a huge element of real estate is presentation it's telling a story it's self-expression it's kind of matching a feeling with a look which you know is part of fashion in every way you can really like change your how you feel how you look and what people think of you just by what you put on in the morning so it's very similar, you know, in, in a lot of the things that we do to to sell real estate. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that old Italian mentality that I sort of grew up with from my paternal grandmother, which was like, put on a pretty dress and put on a smile and go. And no, and, and, and that's just it. Like, and just go about your day and act better than you feel. And that sort of was always my mentality, even when I was getting sober which, you know, getting sober is changing something habitual, which is just so hard, no matter what, whether it's eating or, you know, shopping or whatever the case may be, like making, breaking that pattern is so hard. And I just remember always thinking the worse I felt, the better my outfit, the worst, the worse I felt, the more effort I put into pushing and propelling myself forward, because you just cannot hit cruise control on bad days. Yeah. On bad days, you have to put it into overdrive. Also, you know, I, f- I forget but who, who I was talking to this about, but maybe like somebody in the mom arena, which, you know, as being a mom, it's like you do the school drop off and stuff like that. And you're going to see like stay at home moms and you're going to see working moms and the, 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 like the really athletic moms that hit the gym before. And so you see all types. And for me, because as a working mom, I, you know, I'm always in heels and I'm in a suit or I'm like, always decked, you know, I'm decked. And it's like, you know, I, my kids went to this like very granola, very organic kind of preschool. And 
I would get some looks and till they would get to know me and realize like, I'm, I'm you, I'm, we're together. We're moms. We're just in yeah. this arena as moms, but I'm going to drop off from being a mom and then I'm going to go to work and I'm not going to dim my light or diminish my role or what makes me propel forward and feel good about myself so that I could fit into this mold because this is like the way that I have to do it. And I have to work. That's what I do. That's my job right now. And I, I would love to go hit a Pilates class right now, but I'm not. So yes, I'm in because, you know, sometimes they would say things I'm like, oh, don't your feet hurt in those heels? I'm like, no, I just put them on. How would my feet hurt? Like, no, my feet don't hurt. I actually love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love, you know, I, I feel like right off the bat, I get this sense from you that you are in the best way, a woman of walking contradictions and that you embrace that, that it's like, yeah, I can send my kid to the granola school and I can be there and I can be present with them and I can have this like positive parenting style. You know, I can really prioritize my children, but I can also, you know, go right Do it in couture. <laughs> I, can al- I can also be wearing brand name labels, but I can also pair it with something I thrifted and I can, right. you know, I can value yoga and health and wellness and everything, but I can also care about putting something on when I don't always feel the best on the inside and, and sure. just snapping myself yeah. out of it. I think that as women, there is so much, there's so many forces trying to get us to choose what are we going to be? And then it's like a one dimensional thing. Like, are you going to be a glamour girl, like cute and designer and everything? Or are you going to be a budget girl? Or are you going to be a working mom? Are you going to be at home? And I mean, I think that motherhood, again, we're kind of skipping forward a little bit, but motherhood was this catalyst for me that really put a spotlight on that where I was like, okay, wait, like, do I go fully this way or fully this way? And I mean, having two now, it's like, that's a waste of energy to try to find like picking what I'm going to be because that's all what other people need to be labeling me as. Exactly. I am both some days more something than other. And Mm -hmm. it's, I feel sometimes like I'm doing nothing 100%, Uh (laughs) you know, but this is just where we are. And like today is the the thing that matters. What am I doing today? Yeah, I agree. I think that you nailed it. It's just like, we are all dichotomies. I am earthy, but I am materialistic. I am, you know, and my materialism is what drove me. You asked me such an interesting spot on question, which I don't think anyone's ever asked me. It's like, when did you start liking fashion? It's like fashion is actually what drove my success because I loved fashion so much. And I wanted designer things so badly that I had to find a way to become successful. Like literally like that was what drove me. And, you know, I never want to take that a wave that whatever your burn is, you know, whether it's you want to take care of the world or help the poor or give back to your family, whatever burns you. And I wanted to do all of that, but I just wanted to do it in in, in couture, you know, and and I still want to do all of that. And there's, you know, I'll never forget going to the crunchy granola preschool and I was wearing Gucci um, cream pants with cream stilettos and a, and a cream sort of like cashmere sweater. And it was a chilly fall day. And all the parents that go there, you know, everybody's somebody and doing something, but nobody really knows anything because they try to keep it such yeah. a beautiful school. And like everything that they do, the ethos of this school is amazing. And that's why we love it. And, and, you know, you don't really know who you're like sitting next to. You just know that their daughter is Lila. You know, it's one of those. Yeah. And that's such an anonymous beauty. 
And I remember there's like these rocks and you sit around a, a dusty dirt circle and there's a banjo player who's the music teacher and his wife is this French amazing singer and they're in like their late 60s and they're incredible. And so the kids are sitting around, we're doing the morning circle and I, and everyone's sort of like, I see them like, look at me and kind of like, what like she she's in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I sat down in my cream slacks, in my cream Gucci slacks and sat right on the rock. Like, by the way, I don't care about the slacks. I just happen to want to wear what I want to wear yeah. and look a certain way and present myself in an hour when I'm no longer playing, you know, mommy drop off. So I did that. And I remember thinking that I felt very judged. You know, I felt like a lot of eyes were on me and it felt uncomfortable. But I find sales, life, marriage, motherhood, it's all about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And for me, sobriety was such a life lesson that taught me so how to be okay being uncomfortable. And when you get comfortable with the uncomfortable, you can really just learn how to sit in your feelings. So whereas where I could have the glass of wine after a bad day and a lot, you know, in a hard deal or, you know, the kids wouldn't go to bed and now I got them to bed and now I'm going to have wine. Well, if I take wine or an edible or whatever, you know, the thing is now that everybody likes to do, which I'm not judging, by the way, if I were normal, I would do all that kind of stuff like in moderation, but I take that, that cushion out. And so now I've gotten good 17 years later at being comfortable with the uncomfortable, sitting in those hard feelings. And then after I sit with it, then I kind of chop it up and dice it up. And how did that make me feel? And why did that make me feel that way? And what did that affect? Was it my self-esteem? Was it my idea of who I am? Was it my dream of what I thought I was creating? Why did that hit me that way? Then once I, once I kind of like delve that up, then I make the call or make the conversation or set the confrontation. So what, what I mean by that is like that person or that thing that made me uncomfortable after I've sat with it for, I usually, it doesn't have to be 24 hours, but usually a day, if not a minimum of a few hours till I can categorize it. And if it's my ego, then I know that maybe there's not even a confrontation to be had because maybe that's just my problem and I need to get over that ego. But if it's somebody that affected something and I could let them know how that made me feel, then I do. And this happened to me actually just like two days ago. And, you know, it happens to all of us every day, mm-hmm. you know, multiple times a day sometimes. But uh, a woman, a mother friend said something to me that that really struck a nerve. And I thought, you know, my immediate comeback was going to be like something kind of snarky and witty. Yeah. And then I thought, let me pause because I'm agitated. Let me pause. And I picked up the phone instead of firing back with like texts or like, oh, I can one up her on this because like I'm witty too. And, you know, I called her and I said, I just want to let you know that what you said hurt my feelings. And the reason they hurt my feelings is because it makes me realize that you think that of me and that's not who I am. And why I care for you to know who I am is because this is a very big topic for me and something that I deeply believe in. And she was like, oh, my God, you know? Yeah. And that, like, for me, that was, like, such a beautiful moment because it was also a moment for me to not carry a resentment and then for me to also enlighten her a little bit on let's not judge a book by its cover or let's not assume that somebody is a certain way just because society is a certain way. 
I think that's such a great story about when you make a choice to be vulnerable, honest, and with good intentions, like it's undeniable. People can't face down confident vulnerability. They can't face it down or or strike it down. It's literally, it is truth, you know? And I think that's a really fun segue to journalism. So journalism has been a big part of your life. And I don't know if we done we do like word breakdowns as part of Bridget. We're we're all about communication, studying yeah. communication and etymology is like the study of breaking down words and their original meanings. But I think the sources of like journalism break down to like a seeking of truth. I know this was something that you studied in your academics. Um, and then that was one of your like first jobs after, you know, after working with the convalescent home. Can you tell us a little bit about your first job in journalism and what that's kind of meant to you to this day? Sure. So I went to Ohio State University, the Ohio State University, as they call it. And um, it was in the Midwest. It's in Columbus, Ohio. And it was this amazing college where I immediately knew I wanted to get into the journalism department. And I got an internship at NBC immediately. And well, not, not my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year, definitely my junior and senior year. And I loved it. So I would go to my classes and then I would go to, I would go to my internship and I loved following around the, the journalists, the newscasters. And there was this one in particular, I'm pretty sure her name was Mai. She was really beautiful. She was, she was just like spicy and, and like bubbly. And I loved how she reported. And she was so good. Like she wouldn't even write it down. We would go to the scene and she would see what it was. And then she'd be like, and three, two, one. And then she'd go and she would just go. And then she would do like three takes. And she was like besties with the, with the, photo with the uh, videographer. And we would go. And, and the way I would get there would, I would be at, like sitting there like doing my little intern. And then I, I would see her get up to go. And I'd be like, Mike, can I come with you? And she was, she'd be like, sure. Anyway, so she would do like two or three takes and then she would say to her videographer, any one of those will do. And it was so epic because I love she, that. her confidence, she just exuded confidence. And I, and I would look at her coming from this, you know, I, I just made this up while we we're talking, but this green light mentality of being raised from my mother, right? And I, and, and I was like, what is she doing in Columbus, Ohio? She belongs in Hollywood. That's what I would think in my head. I'm like, why is she here? So I go through my internship and this is like my first journalism job. That's why I'm answering it with this. And then I would follow a few other reporters and um, some of them weren't as nice. My was really nice. And so one day the videographer and I kind of, you know, had been around each other for a while. And I was like, when they take a break, will you shoot me? Can I try? And he goes, yeah. So basically I took whatever the journal reporter said and I kind of just like, you know, ad-libbed and made it my own. And I slowly started to get string together a resume, a reel. And one day someone told me when I was sort of like, well, why don't you go to like LA or something? You know, cause LA is like from an East coast girl who's studying college in the Midwest. Like LA is like, you know, the motherland, like it's like the, the you know, the ultimate. Yeah. So they're like, oh, no, Rainy, it doesn't work like that. Like in journalism, real reporters, you start at the bottom and you have you're, you're just like a tripod and, you know, you, a microphone if you're lucky and you have to shoot your own content and you have to start in Iowa. And I'm like, Iowa. Oh, my God, I'm not going to Iowa. 
And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to go to LA. It's right. This is like, this is my mentality. And so I remember a guy doing a drive along with a guy who was like pretty high up in, in the network. And I was telling him, you know, I was like, you know, next next semester or quarter, I'm I'm graduating. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? We can offer you a job here. You know, you can start doing whatever. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to L.A. And he's like, OK. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to. So I literally come to L.A. I don't have any friends. I don't have a job lined up. My brother and I drive my car out stuffed my SUV with all of my stuff, shipped out the rest. And it took us a few days. We made a few stops along the way. And I remember there was a restaurant. You probably won't remember. I don't know if you would remember this. It was called um, Jerry's Deli. And it was a very famous deli in Hollywood. And we went to Jerry's Deli to get a sandwich the day that he was getting ready to leave me. And I had a checkbook. Remember like checkbook? Yes. And so, and I pulled out my checkbook because we'd fully made the move. I'm in my apartment now. He gets me all set up. We made our like whatever runs that you need to make to get, you know, the place cozy and everything. And I balance my checkbook and he's eating his, you know, Reuben or whatever my brother's eating. And I look up at him and I'm like, I had $20, $20 to my name. And I, my family didn't want me to come. Nobody wanted me to come. especially my brother who like played it safe. I was kind of like the riskier one. And I'm thinking, shit, why didn't I just stay in Columbus, Ohio and take that NBC? But I'm like, you know, so I take my first job for journalism is the closest thing that I could get because I thought once I get in the door, they can't deny me at E! Entertainment. And I wore a headset much like this because I was the receptionist. (laughs) (laughs) And, And... I was the front of the house and every single person that came in, first of all, my outfits were off the charts. I would wear hats over my microphone, big hats. I I would wear, I was decked head to toe and I was, you know, 21 years old and every single person that came in that would make eye contact with me or give me the time of day, I tried to connect with. I tried to be extra accommodating and then I thought, you know, what's my next step? I learned all the departments. And it's not the bureaucracy that, you know, you just kind of climb the corporate ladder that the way that those companies are structured. So I was not going to be able to really move quickly there, maybe a PA job next or whatever. So I approached them with an online column and I then took a job writing for E! Online where I would go and test out restaurants and I was the grumpy gourmet. I called myself the grumpy gourmet and I would go incognito and nobody knew who I was and I would do a restaurant review. And -hmm. then from there, I was writing for different publications throughout the city that were freelance. And um, honestly, I was barely able to eat. I I had this SUV that I was given. It was a gift in college as a graduation gift. And it took a lot of gas. I I specify that it was an SUV because we're in LA and that's like a gas guzzler. And when you can't afford gas, you know, we didn't have Priuses back then. And so I remember having to choose between like a can of tuna or gas. And so, you know, I would get $5 worth of gas and a can of tuna. Like I yeah. literally was, I would pay my rent, pay my necessity bills, and I was left with barely anything. Then I started working, you know, and supplementing by doing, you know, bottle service at, at clubs on Friday and Saturday night. And then a Monday, come Monday, I would do, you know, E and then the column. And that was from 21 to probably 23 until I got into mortgages. 
Amazing. I mean, what I'm hearing is that journalism was clearly a passion of yours, you know, as an interest that you had. And I, and I love that just like think big and it's going to happen. Like there's no other way I'm going to LA. I love that kind of vision because, you know, I think most super successful people at some point, you know, there's a pivotal choice that they made where it's like, that's it. That's, that's what I'm doing, you mm-hmm. know, and we're going to figure it out on the way. And had you not moved to LA, you know, your life would have looked completely different. So it's Absolutely. a big pivotal moment. And, you know, thankfully your brother coming with you to support you in that, but still like not knowing exactly how it's going to work out, but just being like, I'm going to do this and this and this, and we'll just add on and change things as it goes, but I'm staying out here. So I know that you got into mortgages and that seems like a pretty dramatic shift from going like working in journalism and bottle service and kind of just, and you know, this, this uh, blog really online column and then to go into mortgages. What was that transition like and what was it like driven by? It was driven by my family. My mom really would supplement me with, you know, a little bit, not a lot, but she would send me, you know, when I would, mom, I'm really having trouble this month or that month. And this went on for a few years. And my grandmother too, the convalescent homeowner, when she, she and I were very close and she would help me. And they were like, look, here's the deal. You are not making it. You're really, really struggling. And you know, real estate, our family is in real estate. You, I, a, a chunks that I skipped was, was my grandfather who, yes, became the developer. There was that, but then my mother remarried and she married a man who was in commercial real estate. And he, this was my stepfather, my, my whole life. And so whatever he and I, we wouldn't have the greatest relationship, but when I was little, he was nice to me and I would kind of roll around with him to go collect rent or he owned a lot of buildings. I owned a lot, a lot of apartments. And so I understood he was on the phone. I would hear him making deals. And that was a big part of my story that I left out. But anyway, so the, the, the point of that is that I knew real estate and my family, my grandmother and my mom were like, you know, why don't you get into real estate? Because this moment of us helping you is coming to an end. And I, um, at that time was pretty also deeply into drugs and alcohol, but I was always able to clean myself up kind of because of that mentality of like looking good and putting the fashion first and whatever. So nobody really knew. So my family didn't know that I had a problem, but they knew that I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and it's not connecting. So why is it not connecting, right? That, and they kind of gave me a deadline, like you, you need to get it together. And they didn't say you need to get sobriety together. They said, you need to start making some money to support yourself. And so I didn't want to go into real estate because that would be capitulating to the family. No, you know, known business. I have to make my own way because I came all the way to LA to do something. So I got into one step away from real estate, which was lending. And I also knew a guy who owned the countrywide at that time. This was the subprime. And, you know, he said, you would be so good. You, you know, you should get into this. And so that was my first stop was mortgages. And I was at this time, maybe 23 to 24. And I actually had a lot of success um, because it was male dominated. Then so I would go into the office and, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Boiler Room, it was a lot like that. And the men were driving exotic cars and they were super young and they were in their 20s. 
and they were aggressive and they were, quite frankly, they were soulless. And I didn't know in the beginning. I just thought, you know, my manager said, this is the product and it's a, it's a monthly adjustable and you're going to get three points in the front. You're going to get three points in the back and this is what you're going to sell. Like I thought it was like the monthly special. I'm like, oh, so this month I'm going to sell the, the monthly adjustable. And I didn't really know what the ramifications were. So I was cold calling because I have a woman's voice and maybe a sweeter voice and a man's voice that's calling. Within like two seconds, I could get people to give me their social security numbers over the phone. And if you're giving someone your social security number over the phone, I mean, good God, like what, what, you know, what is wrong with this story? So I would sign up all these loans. And then, you know, maybe if I would sign up 10 in the week, maybe five or seven would close or whatever. And I started generating this income. And then one day I, I said to my manager, so what, what happens if like the rate keeps going up and going up? Like what's going to happen to say Mrs. Smith, because she's fixed income. And he's like, oh no, Rainy, it's not going to go up. Like it's, it's fine. I'm like, no, but it could, right? Like the fine print, it's a monthly adjustable. And he's like, stop. It's not good. like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're selling. Like, basically don't question me. He would even throw the ball against the wall. Like we would have the meeting room in the conference room and this is where, and like, they would beat it down. Like, this is what you're doing. I thought to myself, I don't know what the hell this is, but like, I want out. Yeah. And I remember doing a handful of the loans. I even originated a bunch of loans, some that weren't as harmful as others. Sometimes they wouldn't be like this monthly adjustable. But my last loan was a woman that gave me her social security over the phone. She, she told me all about her life. I ended up talking to her on the phone and you know, my love of elderly. Yeah. And I went home and I was like, that does not seem right. Like what if something happens and I'm telling her to pull out all this money and remodel her house? What the hell does she need to do that for? Like take a vacation. This sounds crazy. I called her back cause I couldn't cancel loan. And I said, you know, Mrs. Smith, I was like, listen, you need to call and You need to cancel. I want you to call the office. And I want you to cancel your loan. You have to do it tomorrow. She's like, no, 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 but I'm going to go to Aruba. I'm like, forget about Aruba for right now. Cancel this loan. It's very dangerous. If you were my grandmother, I'd want you to cancel. And I hung up and I went out and I gave my notice. I think I waited because I was nervous they weren't going to pay. I wanted to get paid out on the loans that I had. I th and I think I got my last loan. I didn't originate anymore. And I started studying for my real estate license in tandem to doing these loans. Because what happened was in the middle of that, a girlfriend that I went to college with was, lived in Miami and she was in real estate and she came to LA to visit and she was just really living the high life from real estate because she was a young girl that, you know, made this wonderful living and she loved it and it was fun and she got to get dressed up and it was glamorous and she got to interact with people. But more than that, she got to help people. And that was the missing ingredient from mortgages. And I'm not saying that all lenders are like this. And that subprime was a really yeah. terrible time. And things have regulated since then. So things are better. And I'm not, you know, again, not judging mortgage brokers. I work with a ton of them. And, and I think there's some really talented people out there that know the products and how to get, get you what you need. But at, it was just circumstantial that I was it mixed up in this, in this world of subprime. So I segue into real estate from there. Amazing. It sounds like, I mean, you look at your success today and this kind of winding path that I love breaking down these stories because a lot of times, especially young women, they see the success of today and they're like, that is so far from me. 
But then when you kind of see the winding path and it's like, okay, well, this didn't work out. So then I ended up here. And then, then it's like, wow, this place where you've ended is like where you've had the greatest success. And you probably couldn't have anticipated that even a month before you, you left and then yeah. pivoted. I think that that voice in our head, you know, that question, it's like a meme. It always pops up like in Instagram and stuff. It'll be like, what would you tell your younger self? Crazy story because I'm not, you know, the most confident or, you know, I have my bad days and all of this stuff like we all do. But my voice in my head, which probably came from my dear mother, was like, yeah, you're going to make it. I didn't know how I was going to make it, but I knew I was going to make it. It's so strange. But I swear I use this with my children. Like I want to instill that same voice because the voice that we, the way that we speak to our kids, I believe is the voice that they'll eternally hear. And so I was just always told that, you know, that, that I can do it. Yes, you can do that. Okay. Yes. I don't know how Rainy. we'll figure it out. Let's go. And, and that was sort of like my mom and I, our bond was just like, it was just she and I against the world. We're like, we're going to do this. And I would take her like on crazy journeys and, you know, I would be like, mom, we're doing, and she'd be like, okay, like, let's try. And so I, I really think that my younger self really believed it. Just like I believed I was tall, just like I believed I had a shot to go to the biggest market as a journalist, which of course it didn't work out, but it brought me here. Love that. Another big component of your success, obviously, is that you and Brandon work as a team. You are married, but you also work side by side. And stories about how you met, you know, you were initially, you're like, okay, we like a lot of the same things, fashion being one of them. Yeah. But you also, and especially got the sense after having talked with both of you, you have very different and complementary skills and personalities. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, from the time that you two met and were working together? And then through like your relationship and as it's progressed, can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and why you think it's been successful? Yeah, sure. So I was sitting in my cubicle in that little Valentino dress that I told you about, the vintage one. And he came up to me and said he loved fashion. He went to fit him for fashion and he was an actor, kind of fell into acting because he grew up in L.A. And he was, you know, a good looking, interesting and he was a real character. So he, he kept getting he had a casting director approached him and one job led to another but he studied fashion. So he came up to me and he's like, I like her dress. And at that time, I, I actually had a listing and I got a listing by being tenacious. And I, I would park my car at the bottom of Truesdale, which is that neighborhood where, you know, where I live, which is in uh, that Beverly Hills. It's the hills of Beverly Hills. And I couldn't afford a gym membership. So I would park my car at the bottom and walk up this, you know, great, great workout for the leg. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and and while I would do that, I would door knock or I would hit the construction sites. And I would usually do this on Fridays because, you know, the construction sites are closed down on the weekends. And then I would do it on the weekends where I would just, you know, sometimes if I felt saw an, somebody come out, I would talk to them and, you know, just kind of started my career there. And I ended up getting a listing. So I had this listing. It was like a $5 million listing. And I didn't have the skill set of selling that Brandon had. Brandon grew up, unlike me having the green light effect, his parents, he grew up on the other side of the tracks of Beverly Hills, so to speak, you know, in the mm -hmm. poor section where they were pushing to get him into Beverly Hills schools. And he also, if he wanted a skateboard or extras, he had to work. But his form of work was working with his father who sold cowhides 
and sheepskin on the sides of La Cienega and the sides of the road. They were called Hollywood love rugs. His yeah. father was a gorgeous out of work actor who came here from Miami to be an actor and um, whatever. This ends up being part of his story that this is that he ends up doing this sales job and he Brandon, little Brandon would go to work. So Brandon would come over to my cubicle after we, you know, broke the the ice with I like your dress. And he threw a few jokes out. I had a picture of my mom in my cubicle. He said, Oh, I see the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And he proceeded to tell me he was gay, which I believed. I told the girls in the office, I was like, you know, Brandon Williams, the gay one, he's so cute. And they're like, Brandon Williams? Okay. <laughs> he was dating a famous actress. For yeah. many, many years since they were, you know, high school sweethearts and he was in that relationship and he was sort of, you know, infamous and in town. He was very well liked amongst the women, too. And so they were like, he's not gay. And I'm like, oh, no. OK. And so he was trying to disarm me. Anyway, the bottom line is he said I'd be on the phone and he would come over and he'd be like, size them up. And I'm like, huh? He's like, size them up. I'm like, what do you I'm like covering the phone. I'm like, what does that mean? Size them up. And I would get off the phone. He'd be like, look, here's the deal. You're talking to the client too much. You don't need to know what they're eating for breakfast. You need to know are they going to buy this house or not. You need to know, first and foremost, are they qualified? Do they have any money? How do you know this person? Why are you talking to them so much? And I was like, oh, okay. And then he started going to appointments with me. Whereas as a young girl, maybe, you know, young guys would call and say, hey, come over and tell me what my house is worth. And I empathize with young girls. And I have a lot of young, beautiful agents in my office. And I talk to them. I'm like, guys, here's the deal. I had a male partner who, guess what? I would get that call from that guy who wanted me to drive around and have lunch with him and show him 10 houses. And guess what? My male partner rolls up and it gets all business, real serious, real fast. And that's what he meant by size them up. So he brought me the sales technique and I saw in him the most gifted, the most talented creature I'd ever met. I thought to myself, I've never met somebody as smart as him. And he's got a million learning disabilities and he's got, you know, a million reasons why he wouldn't be successful on paper. But I saw in him a real savant in so many different ways. And so I was like, if I get behind him and he teaches me this street smart that he has, and I, you know, I I think we can really do this. And there was a guy in the office that he wanted to partner with because they were both like the cool guys of Beverly Hills. And he knew this guy. This is before reality TV shows. This is before like young people really did it. Like we were we were like the only young ones, you know, it didn't work out with this guy. The guy kind of screwed him over in a way, like d- didn't like didn't take his clairvoyancy, which is what I call it, because Brandon is so clairvoyant. Like he he found this deal and directed it to the guy and the guy didn't didn't reciprocate and didn't take care of mm-hmm. him. And he wasn't asking for a lot. He just said, but it was my idea. No, nothing. So he fell into my lap. Although we already had this, you know, this, this, this like connection. And then the next thing you know, he was sober. Like day three of meeting me, he looked at me and he said, doesn't, I've never drank in front of him. I didn't drink in yeah. the office. Nobody in the office knew I drank. I was dressed up. He looked at me and he goes, you'd be amazing if you got sober. And I was like, huh? But I didn't, I didn't defend myself. I didn't say anything. I just said, yeah. oh, he planted the seed. I kept drinking for three more months. We kept working together in tandem, but we weren't business partners. And then I called him. I said, I think I have a problem. 
He took me to my first AA meeting. He said, listen, for the similarities, not the differences. Similarities, not the differences. I said, okay. He said, anything that you think is a coincidence is a God shot. I said, okay, copy that. I got it. I walk in. The first person I see is my direct next door neighbor, who is a woman who is very distinct looking, who would see me coming to and whatever else she would see in my in my craziness of, you know, this this stage that I was in. And um, she looked at me and she said, honey, you're in the right place. And she hugged me and she never, ever said another word about anything else that she saw through my window. She just said, you're in the right place. And she went on to be my sponsor. Brandon and I went to trudge the road of sobriety together. We would go, we would work all day long. We would go to AA meetings in the night. We would hit Starbucks about four times in the middle of the day. And we were all (laughs) hopped up on caffeine and we were hungry to make deals and to help people and to get our name out there. And he brought you know, the grit and the street smarts. And I also had the grit and I had the book smarts. So that's how it kind of happened. I love that. I mean, I, so I I married an entrepreneur. He runs bars and restaurants down here in Orange County. And it's funny when you're, you're mentioning like how you were just in awe of Brandon you're like, wow, like he has this whole other, like, obviously we have a connection and stuff, but like this side of him is like fascinating to me. And Mm -hmm. he's so gifted. And it's funny because like my, my husband laughs. He's like, "Oh, I hated school. I sucked it. Like my grades were bad." But I see him, and I'm like, "But like these, you know, entrepreneurial decisions that you make. Like, how did you know that that was going to be like the right thing? And like, yeah. what what about that investment didn't make sense? And like, how like what was the key thing? And you know, I've had situations where you know, as a relatively new agent, I get really personally invested in pretty much everything that I do, and that's one of the things that like I love about real estate because I'm like they said people's homes, you know, like you're, you, you go in and you're hearing like, oh, the reason that these people have to move is because of this family situation. You're in, inside their family room, you know, you're seeing everything. It's so private and vulnerable for people to let you into their, their homes and their investments and their assets and everything. And I love that. I'm like, I, I love that I can be right there with them and people can trust me and I can help them. But then I get really invested. And, you know, and sometimes the, the nature of real estate I'm learning is that like, things fall apart and people say no and they shift on you and you have to just like fluctuate. But he's told me like, you know, that's okay. Like just pick it up and do try something else. What's next? What's next? And that mindset, I'm like, man, you are, I need to learn that from you, that ability to just dust it off. What's next? Dust it off. What's next? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that kind of um, having that in a partner, you know, someone that brings something completely different to what you bring to the table is so, um, I just love hearing about that with the two of you. I think it's so key for a partnership, life partnership, yeah. business partnership. It's it's all the same. You know, it's it's the yin and the yang. What would you say? Because, you know, so many people say like, oh, don't go into business with, you know, your best friends or your partner or whatever. What would you say has been um, the most important thing about working together? The most important thing about working together is communication. It's not for everyone. It's challenging. You know, a bad day at the office is a bad day at home. It's just the way it is. There's no barriers. There's no boundaries. When we first started working together, we were business partners for five years before we became a couple. And when we segued into being a couple, we were already best friends and we had this amazing foundation and we knew everything about each other. But I was like, well, if we're going to segue in, we have to have some boundaries. You know, we if we're going to go to dinner, like we have to shut it off. We cannot talk about real estate. 
So we tried that for a couple of weeks and it was disastrous because we were both holding back things that we wanted to say. And we weren't really being our true selves. And our true selves are, you know, at our core, we're people pleasers that want to do right by others. And we've turned those things, which could be viewed as character defects, and we've turned them into changing the world. And 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 it could sound so, you know, silly to somebody that's like, oh, you're selling real estate, you're not changing the world. But we are enhancing lives and we are enhancing lifestyles and we are showing people how to build their portfolio and how to go into a condo that goes into your first home, that goes into your second home, that goes into your, you know, ultimate dream home or chopping up that portfolio into a destination or a second home. And that's what we do. And so when we stopped focusing on what our work and love relationship should look like, and we focused on where our souls pulled us and what we were driven to talk about or do and let it be organic, that's when the magic really started happening because we would be at dinner and we would talk about ourselves and our vacation that we were planning and how this fight made us feel and our feelings and this and that. And we talked a little bit about a sobriety and a sponsee that we have and so-and-so. And then if we felt like talking about our, our escrows, we would talk about our escrows and it would only enhance our business and our work because we're working overtime when we're not really working. And mm-hmm. so that has worked for us. And people always ask me, I'm thinking about going into business with my spouse. What do you think? And I say, I don't have any experience with that. My experience was my business partner and best friend became my spouse because I really think it is a very serious thing to go into a relationship that was this way and then now to go into business. It definitely would be different. And I I, I don't know any different. So I never try to advise people on going the opposite way. In fact, I think there's something beautiful about having segregated careers, but I also think who better to do business with, for instance, the man who runs Williams and Williams, which is our division of the Beverly Hills Estates, which is, you know, Brandon and Rainey Williams, we're, we're Williams and Williams. That man was my best friend in college and like an older brother to me. And he's ran, he's been our director of operations for almost 10 years. And then Brandon's two best friends, one of which was a surf buddy and one is his childhood best friend, have been our top buyer's agents for six or seven years, eight years maybe. You know, so I absolutely love to work with the people that I love and are my friends because I think you have very clear boundaries. You have clear contracts. Clear contracts make great relationships and everything is spelled out. And when you do that, then you just let people do what they do best. I love that, that, you know, the second that you guys were like, let's just like allow ourselves to be free. And it's like, yeah, we have a lot of different arenas that we work together in, whether it's, you know, our marriage our sobriety, our business, you know, our, our interests, and let's just let it be more free flowing and keep the central thing that like, we're in it together. We're helping each other be better, we're respecting each other and we're showing up for each other and how that has worked for you. But I also love the advice that it's like, I can't give you advice on whether or not you should go into business with your husband or if, or on the other hand, that it's like whether you should turn a work relationship into a marriage. It's like that, that this was your situation, you Mm -hmm. know, and, you know, I could see turning a work relationship into a marriage easier than I could see turning a marriage into a work relationship. And um, it is so hard that 
it's not something that that is for everyone. And, you know, yeah. and, the, and, and I'm very romantic and I'm sentimental and all of that kind of stuff. And I know people that are like that, that if it, it would just absolutely break their heart and their spirit to, to have to turn that aspect of the love and the romance into such a mundane work environment, you know, so I, it is not for the faint of heart really have yeah. to think it through. It's interesting because I think even with like friendships and partnerships, it can be similar. Like oh, yeah. my co-host, Kashia, who you'll meet, we started, she was one of my sister's friends and she reached out to me. She's like, I see this Bridget thing that you're doing. She's like, I know we're not super close, but can I help you with it? Can we work together on it? Mm-hmm. So when we started, we were just like, I was like, cool. Like this friend of my sister like wants to help me. And we just started working together. And for a while, that's just all we were doing together. And through the process of like overcoming these obstacles in a work setting, together focused on this mission of Bridget, we looked back and we're like, wow, we're like, we're not even like best friends. We're like sisters now. And this, this relationship came out of like, it started with us working together. And like, it was almost like incidental that we became such, such close friends. But I can't imagine, you know, there are other things where I'm like, oh, you know, could I start a business with a best friend? I'm like, I don't know, that involves some like really fundamental, yeah, like having to set those boundaries and everything rather than like seeing a love kind of come out of just working really well together. You you also have to be like okay with letting go of the easy breezy, like your dinners, your journeys, your whatever, your excursions are no longer just for fun and for free. They're like now... They're a little bit of like the fun and free, joyous stuff. And then they're peppered in with the tensions and the stress of a business. And so um, I would say it is something that is not to be taken lightly. And I think also getting into business with somebody, you want to get into business with somebody the way you described your husband and you view your husband, the way I describe and view my husband is they have skill sets that I saw, you know, and you saw in them that are different skill sets than than I have. And I think that that is so important because in a partnership, the real partnerships that I see thriving are two people that bring vastly different things to the table. I love it. Such a piece of wisdom. Well, I feel like I could just pick your brain forever. You are so interesting and so down to earth, um, but I want to respect your time as I know you have a lot on your plate. We didn't even really get into like the motherhood stuff and how you've done all of this with children, which is, I feel like could be an entirely separate conversation. <laughs> Maybe we think about that at some point, but we usually, we close out our interviews with like a fast five questions and you just kind of say whatever comes to mind, sure. elaborate however you want. And then I have a final question we can close out. Great. So, so for our fast five, do you have a phrase that is most used as a parent? You know, for me, I tell my kids, um, whatever you want to do that makes you happy is what you should pursue. And whatever makes you feel good in your tummy. That's such a gift. Yeah. And I think that that will help them to take away like societal demands. And, and instead of, you know, going for the money, you're going for what we think that they should do. I w- if they want to be artists, I want them to be artists. I want them to do whatever they want to do. I think that developing that sense of feedback, like internal feedback, when we're in a world of a bazillion external feedbacks and instant gratification is such a gift to, yeah. to kids. I, think I love so that. Too. Yeah. Um, number two, if you had a, a piece of advice for a brand new agent or like a, the most important 
habit that you can establish as a salesperson, what would it be? Be obsessed or be average. Yes. Live, breathe, and sleep real estate or whatever the career path that you're choosing. Wake up to it and go to sleep to it. And I do not believe in you know, anything else. And there are people that, oh, you know, you need your break. I mean, I didn't take a break for five years. I never went on vacation for five years because I would take little breaks. And of course you have to, you know, I, I meditated my whole life and I do you know, different things. Like you have to do your workout and do your health course. But if you really want to be the best, you must be obsessed. For number three, what do you look for in people that you work with and for? For people that I work for and with, I look for kindness, empathy, and most of all, directness. I like direct conversation. I do not do well with passive aggressive. I don't do well with um, people that can't express their needs because of a whole plethora of things. But most importantly, I want my employees to be happy. And if they can't tell me what makes them happy, it's very hard to run a big business and be able to, you know, read people's minds. And then for clients that I'm working for, I want their ultimate lifestyle desires wish list. And then as an expert, I'm going to dice that up and come back with what is the expert opinion on what I think that should be. Because sometimes buyers don't know, you know, and sometimes sellers don't know, but it's our job to be able to read between the lines. But the only way you can really do that is if they're very direct and honest. Uh, number four, what is your favorite like habit or self-care routine to get yourself feeling and looking good? I love meditation. I love meditation and I, I, I practice kundalini yoga. How often are you doing that? Every day. I love it. See, there's always time for things that you prioritize. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like some people might think like, She's so busy. There's no time to do like this, this, and this, but like workout and breathing is so key. And this morning I actually did a, a small meditation and I did my trainer. So I either do my trainer, which, which guys, I think weights are so important for the body too. So, too. so I either think like weights, cardio or the yoga, but always incorporate med I always incorporate meditation. And even for the meditation, like if you don't have time to do a full meditation, even small little ritualistic meditations, like the minute that I get out of bed, I put my feet on the ground, both feet on the ground, and I put my hands on, on my legs and I just take three like this in and out and I set my mind and my intention for today will be a beautiful day. And then I get up and go pee. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to try it in the morning. It's so simple. And it's so like, simple. And I simple. feel like sometimes I'm gonna, I, I've told myself a million times, like I'll find myself meditating where I'm like, oh, cool. I could close my eyes. I have a couple of minutes. You know, I can take a break here. But then you, you hear meditation. It can seem like such a big thing. Like I'm going to be a meditator now, right. you know, but it can be as simple as just like, it's going to build it into this routine that is all already, you know, exactly. I'm, I have a routine, whether I am acknowledging it or not. And it doesn't have to be 20 minutes. It can be five minutes and it doesn't have to be cross like, and it doesn't have to be with the crack. No, it can be, it doesn't have to be an uncomfortable. So it can be with your duvet up to here. It's whatever feels good and whatever can quiet your mind. And the more you practice, the better you'll get at it. I love it. When we do our workshops with teen girls all over LA, we'd always start with a meditation. 
And a lot of the girls, when they began, they'd be looking around. They're like, why is this? Why is this what we're doing? This is not really what I thought. But we could see the reason we kept it in every single workshop we did was that like the energy in the room changed. Like the girls were able to open up. It would just, it shifted everything, got everybody present. And like it changed every workshop we did. So love meditation. For number five, what is your favorite way to celebrate a, a deal closing? Well, when I was single before we, Brandon and I were a couple, and I just was a single girl with my own finances, I would buy myself something from every deal. So if it was a small deal, I'd get something small. And if it were a bigger deal, maybe I would get myself like a handbag or a pair of shoes, something that could add to to my look and to my business. And it's also marketing. You can write it off. And then if it's something small, you know, like let's say we're, we're a very small deal, just, you know, going out to get, you know, a little nibble, maybe at an appetizer at a, at a nice, beautiful, you know, hotel bar or, you know, somewhere chic, like the ambiance, going to a great museum with a friend and treating, you know, like something like that, like the Basquiat exhibit is um, downtown LA and anytime Mocha or any exhibit that I could go to, like to just little things like that. And to pick and pick up the ticket, like call a friend and I, I got us tickets to go see this. You know, it's my treat because of this deal. And why? Because memorializing the deals are completion of the universe and completion is the key to the universe. So for an abundant philosophy and, you know, to really come from that place of abundance, we have to practice completion and gratitude. So it's sort of like, why do we do this at the end? You know, namaste why because we're closing ceremony and so just close ceremony whether it's a little condo close your ceremony whether it's a big deal close your close your ceremony you know what i mean with a big to do and i have whatever i have like little pieces from here or there i remember the deals like oh my god i let that was like my first chanel bag that i ever bought and that was when i did the you know the dr dre deal or whatever you know what i mean something like that yeah well, and every time you see that item, even if it's subliminal, you're reminding yourself of a success, a completed, closed thing, you know, that you did. And even if it's like you're not looking at it and be like, oh, that was that deal. Every time your your brain associates those memories, absolutely, you know, even subconsciously. I love that. And I think that it could even be like applied to, you know, things that didn't go so well, but past relationships. I've always had some kind of ceremony, whether it's like, you know, and maybe this is weird, but like, oh, okay, that relationship closed. Here's the box of things. I just walked it out to the dumpster and dropped it in there. Blows it up. Or like I wrote a letter to myself at that time and and all the things that were why it was the right decision to myself. And I closed it up and I burned it or whatever it was that it's like even the things that don't work, like let's package it and put it away. Yeah. Because we're done with that. You know, we here are the things we learned and we're moving. We're moving uh, absolutely. It. I love it. Well good. Okay, well, for our final question, we always like to ask the same question. What was one quality that you had as a young woman that you didn't necessarily take pride in then, but that you look back on and you're so grateful for now? I was always uh, aware of my surrounding. And from a very young age, and I even remember teachers would say that to, to my mom, and I could always read the room. And, I, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it can be painful. Right. Because as we learn, as we get older, what other people say or think about you is really none of your business and it has nothing to do with you. But as a small child, I sort of could always feel 
what was going on and who was saying what or doing what. And um, it didn't start to serve me until I realized that I could put as little or as much weight on that as I needed to. And if it was toxic or negative, I can just push that out. And if it was something I wanted to receive, I could receive it. And so I use that to my benefit now because I think that it's sort of like having tentacles, like an octopus, you know, and they're sort of like out there and you can gather up what you want and like bring it in or you can just leave it out there. I love that visual. So good. Well, where can, you know, people want to learn more about you. They want to learn about Beverly Hills Estates. Um, tell our audience where they can, they can find you. For sure. Yes. The, the Beverly Hills Estates.com is our website and um, at the Beverly Hills Estates is our Instagram. The Beverly Hills Estates. And then Williams and Williams is my husband and I, and that's at Williams and Williams on Instagram. I love it. Rainy Williams, thank you so much for being here with me today. I learned so much from our conversation and I can't wait for our audience to hear more from you. I appreciate your time and look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you so much, Josh. I had so much fun. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesome?